Hello, everybody, and welcome to Medical Benefits. This is Greg Lois. Today's day is March 27th, 2023. And yes, I am wearing my spring colors today uh, as we get ready for spring. Hopefully, it will come eventually. All right, well, let's take a look at what we're talking about today. Uh, today, we're talking about medical benefits. Next month, we're talking about lost time benefits. And in May, we're going to turn to common litigation issues. And we really have rebuilt this webinar course series for this year. So we're gonna have a completely different course schedule. So thanks for jumping in. Today we're gonna to talk about why medical care is important, when it ends, how we defend motions for men in Tempe, New Jersey, and when to hire and what to expect from medical experts. So let's dive in. And to put this in context, let's just remember our mission is to take control and stay in control of the New Jersey case. You have this opportunity in New Jersey to stay in control because you control and direct medical, and we want to use that to help us drive the case to closure. Staying in control of medical is the number one most important thing we can be doing because it's going to lower exposure and shorten the claim lifetime in this state. Now, medical treatment also is going to impact the overall permanency value, meaning settlement value in New Jersey, because it's an impairment theory state, which means the more medical care the claimant gets, generally speaking, the higher the award is that they're going to receive. So you really want to stay in control of this in this jurisdiction. So this is a completely and totally live webinar. Um, please, as we dive into this, please ask me questions. It makes it so much more fun. Uh, when you ask questions, you'll type them into the little box. I will see them pop up, and I will ask answer as many as I can at the end, time permitting. I will not embarrass you, so please go ahead and ask your question. I will only say your first name uh, so that you know I'm answering your question, and then I'm going to read your question to the whole audience. And really, it's really useful to ask questions because even if you think the question is like simple or, or maybe you feel dumb for asking it, please ask it because there's somebody who's watching this on, on uh, video playback or as a podcast that was probably wishing you asked about that uh, question. Yes, this uh, webinar is recorded, and yes, they are all available and archived on our website, so you can go there. Uh, other ways to learn, uh, grab a copy of our New Jersey Workers' Compensation Law 2023 Handbook. It is on our website, loisllc.com publications. Check out uh, our podcasts. Every single one of the webinars we do each month is turned into a webinar, and I'm sorry, it's turned into a podcast. So if you don't want to watch, you can listen. Really a great thing to be doing on that commute. Uh, we publish four podcasts a month plus a third Friday's webinar, uh, which is my partner Christian Cisson's webinar. And that one is really a second level or higher level uh, topic, usually a discussion involving multiple attorneys discussing a legal topic. All of those podcasts are available through any of the podcast um, platforms you use. Uh, like iTunes or Spotify, and also on loislc.com forward slash podcasts. All right, let's talk about medical treatment in New Jersey. It is governed by the statute, Section 15, and you have the right as the employer or carrier to select physicians and facilities in New York, in New Jersey. What's great about this is uh, you can put together your own preferred provider network or preferred provider organization, or you can simply rent one. Uh, we see that most of our clients are using preferred provider networks to identify the best medical providers for their employees. We're seeing super high network penetration, over 90% uh, 
of the time able to find a specialist or a clinician within a specific specialty. You also control things like pharmacy, you control diagnostic testing, and of course you can completely and totally direct care in the state. So for example, you can send the petitioner for things like functional capacity evaluations or any other testing that you think is necessary to uh, provide or restore function or provide palliative or curative care to the petitioner. Now, when we deny or dispute care, there is a remedy through the workers' compensation system. Uh, the petitioner does not have the right to sue you outside of the system or claim that you didn't provide them the care that they need. But they do have a system, a remedy through the workers' comp system, which is called the motion for med intent, which I'll talk about coming up. Now, we care about staying in control of these cases because controlling the medical is a powerful tool. Again, it will help reduce the course of the claim, shorten the time of the claim, and help you reduce overall exposure. Now, there are ways for the court to take away our control of these cases. And when that happens, you can expect that medical will now be in the hands of the petitioner and you will also be exposed for attorney's fees. We can end medical care in New Jersey when the petitioner has reached maximum medical improvement. In New Jersey, it's almost always going to be the treating physician that finds that the petitioner has reached maximum benefit of care. You, generally speaking, will not be hiring a medical expert or an independent medical expert in order to make that determination. Maximum medical improvement in this jurisdiction simply means that the claimant has reached a medical plateau and no further improvement is reasonably expected. The fact that the petitioner might need further palliative care, that's just care that makes you feel better or keeps you functioning, or symptomatic treatment, you know, for things like exacerbations or flares of pain, does not preclude the finding of maximum medical improvement. And in almost all medical reports that I've seen involving the treating physician, they will actually use the term maximum medical improvement, but sometimes they'll use other terms such as fixed and stable, or they'll say return to the office pro nada, uh, or as needed, or they might say has reached a plateau, uh, or uh, sometimes you'll see a sentence, a full sentence, like no need for further orthopedic treatment. So all of those things uh, mean MMI in this jurisdiction. Petitioners try to avoid maximum medical improvement where they can, because remember, that's gonna keep the money flowing to them by delaying scheduled treatment or missing their appointments or delaying or, or missing diagnostic tests or trying to switch their doctors once it's pretty clear that their doctor has either MMI them or is about to. I've also seen circumstances where petitioners are trying to avoid MMI by maybe pondering or putting off curative necessary care, something like a surgery, where they'll say, well, I really wanna think about it for a month or two before I get the surgery, uh, or raising new body parts late in the case, and I call that the start over. Now, this is important because of the way benefits are sequenced in this jurisdiction. Remember that the benefits for the employee in this jurisdiction are medical treatment, wage replacement benefits, which are also called indemnity benefits, permanent disability benefits, and of course, death and dependency benefits. Now, the first and most important benefit, of course, is medical treatment, uh, and that medical benefit begins immediately. Wage replacement benefits will generally follow the medical benefit and the medical treatment course. But remember, that wage replacement ends when the petitioner's curative and palliative care has ended and, and ends at MMI. So once the petitioner has reached MMI, the money stops getting paid. Now, if they still have a residual impairment or disability that impacts their ability to work or carry on their activities of daily living, 
At that moment, when MMI uh, is found, they can then move for permanent residual disability and try to get some kind of award for that medical impairment. Now, remember in this jurisdiction, the award for permanent impairment is for only for medical impairment. Wage earning capacity is not considered in New Jersey. Uh, although there is some case law which says that the judge can consider it, in general, the courts and the medical examiners are simply uh, coming up with their awards of permanent disability just based on the medical treatment course that the petitioner received. Now, the petitioner always is entitled to both curative and palliative care, but that curative care ends at maximum medical improvement. And once that happens, we should be pushing hard for a permanency rating. A petitioner cannot be both temporarily and permanently disabled at the same time. And there are circumstances, though, where uh, they have reached permanent residual disability, but then they need, for example, a new surgery uh, or a revision surgery or something like that, and they could be temporarily disabled for some short period of time again. So that is possible. What's unique about New Jersey is that the employer or carrier has the right to select all the medical providers. And we've got great latitude to select those physicians. Once we've selected a treating physician, that primary care provider or clinician becomes the captain of the ship. And unfortunately, we then have to sort of abide by what the captain of the ship says. If the authorized treating physician recommends a course of care and we refuse to authorize it, the court is likely to side with the treating physician and order us to provide it. You can change doctors, uh, and there are many reasons to do that. For example, the doctor is retiring or the doctor um, is maybe recommending it themselves. But if you change doctors too often and for reasons that seem spurious or simply to affect the course of litigation, that will be seen as doctor shopping in this jurisdiction. So you have to be thoughtful and careful about that. In this jurisdiction too, we have the opportunity to send the claimant for a functional capacity evaluation. They are considered medical care in this jurisdiction. And that's very um, different than many other jurisdictions. Uh, the petitioner cannot refuse a functional capacity evaluation and I would strongly encourage them, particularly in your more high-value cases, uh, and particularly where you think there might be a malingering or a symptom magnification overlay in your case. Other stuff that counts as medical treatment would be things like nursing home care, if the person can't take care of themselves anymore, any home modification to allow them to remain in their home so they don't have to be in an assisted living facility, and of course, transportation to and from medical appointments, which again could be considered modifying or providing them with a modified vehicle. New Jersey does not have a fee schedule for any treatment, and this leads to a lot of problems in this jurisdiction. Um, that is why you wanna have contractual relationships with the medical providers. Most of our clients are utilizing a preferred provider plan with a pre-negotiated or contracted rate for all the medical services provided by the clinician or medical services provider. Um, most of our clients are using vendor solutions to that, and we are seeing great penetration in those provider networks. So it's pretty rare not to have a specialty or service within that network. Other things that we're responsible for in this jurisdiction are things like prosthetics or assistive devices, hearing aids, transportation, and again, we've already discussed home modifications. Now the danger in this jurisdiction, and again, this is a jurisdiction in which we have a great degree of control over the medical treatment course, is where the petitioner files a motion for med intent. Uh, it's actually called a motion for temporary uh, disability and medical treatment, but the shorthand term, we all call it a motion for med intent. To file this motion, the petitioner has to claim that they are being denied curative care, 
that we are not following our own treating physician's recommendations. We also see them filing it simply because their attorney is being predacious, and this is an opportunity for them to obtain a fee in the case. So when the petitioner files a motion for MedIntemp, they're trying to get control of medical care. That will give them control of wage replacement benefits, the ability to pick their own doctor, sometimes to add body parts, and certainly to increase the value of the overall award. The attorney has motivated to file these, the attorney for the petitioner, because they get fees for filing these motions. And then because these motions will generally lead to more care and sometimes unnecessary care, they will generally lead to higher awards, which will again generate even more fees for the petitioner attorney at the time the case is ultimately resolved. So when we think about a motion for med intent being filed, please understand this is really about staying in or gaining control of this individual case. To me, these are pivotal motions and are as important as defending the case at trial. The motion required uh, is, must be filed by the petitioner, and the burden is on them to prove that they are entitled to the treatment they're demanding. The parts of a motion are a notice of motion, an affidavit of the petitioner stating that they would receive the treatment if it was offered to them, and a medical report from some physician saying they want to provide specific medical care to that petitioner. The procedure is that once a motion is filed, we have 21 days to file an answer. Within 30 days, we have to get our IME done and get that report received within 35 days. And then the case will be conferenced with a judge or a trial will commence. Now, in practice, that rarely happens, uh, simply because it's nearly impossible to get an independent medical evaluation within that time period. However, if you fail to file an answer to a motion, please understand that you are in danger of having the judge take away your control of the case and give it to the petitioner. If there has to be a trial in furtherance of a motion for med intent, the petitioner will testify first, then any fact witnesses we have, and then any of petitioner's medical witnesses and followed up with our medical witnesses. Now the timelines for this um, are relatively long, but generally speaking, judges give these cases precedence on their court calendar and prioritize them and try to get them resolved in a timely fashion, usually within just a few months. The court system also has a concept called an emergent motion in which the judge of compensation um, is allowed to make a ruling very quickly. The emergent uh, motion for med intent is only to be filed where the claimant's life is at risk if the uh, medical care is not provided. And so from when the motion is filed, we have only five days to file our answer. And then there must be a conference with the judge of compensation within 10 days of filing. And we only have 15 days to get an IME. And then the case goes to an open continuous trial, meaning the trial, there is no adjournment possible. It just goes from day to day as the trial is completed. In practice, these are exceedingly rare. I've been in practice for 23 years. I've only defended a handful of emergent motions. And the reason for that is, most emergent motions are defective on their face. The petitioner's life is truly not in jeopardy. And for that reason, the motion is defective and turned into a regular motion for med intent. We defend motions based on the rules, by filing an answering statement, and by presenting proofs. We also force the petitioner to meet their burden. And their burden under the Benson case is that they have to request the care from us that they're seeking. It's improper for the petitioner to simply file a motion seeking medical care 
that they haven't specifically requested from us in advance of filing the motion. Now, the way they can make this request should be in writing. And in Benson, this, the court was specifically looking for a letter. The way this typically is approached nowadays is the claims handler, the claims adjuster, the risk professional, simply gets an email from petitioner's counsel saying, hey, my client wants X treatment. You need to provide it to us as soon as possible. Um, that has been found to be enough uh, to uh, satisfy the petitioner's burden under the statute to bring the claim. Now, the Benson standard says that if care was not requested and has already been obtained, if the care did not uh, materially improve the petitioner's condition, we have the right to argue that we should not be responsible to pay for it or authorize it. Of, of course, uh, there is some defenses to that, and one of the defenses is, Judge, um, it would have been futile or impossible to request the um, employer or carrier to pre-authorize the treatment because, for example, the claimant was unconscious. Uh, so for, there are some um, reasons why the court will relax the standard. When we defend motions, I actually push the claimant to testify that they actually want the treatment, that they would actually accept the care that they are seeking. It's shocking to me how many times a motion is filed for care or specific treatment that the petitioner has previously already turned down. And the reason that happens is the petitioner's counsel is not communicating with the petitioner directly. They're looking at medical records and they're seeing that the doctor suggested some specific course of care and they simply file a motion seeking that care, regardless of the fact that their client has already um, denied that they would accept it. It's also inappropriate and defective for the petitioner to file a motion seeking only temporary disability benefits. That's just wage replacement benefits. There needs to be a demand for actual medical care. If we don't win in defending the motion for med intent, we can appeal any order that the judge enters. And the reason we can appeal it is because that determination uh, is appealable as of right, because it is a final determination for the payment of money or provenance of specific clinician services. I always advise my clients and any attorneys that I'm coaching to be very careful about the specific wording of the order. If you don't prevail in your defense of a motion for med intent, you want to be very careful about the way the judge um, describes the treatment that's to be provided to the petitioner on the terms of the order. You're wanting that to be as narrow as possible. You don't want it to be broad. Uh, if it's too broad, you might be responsible to provide additional medical care down the road that no one was ever intending for this petitioner to receive. The other thing we challenge is the petitioner's attorney uh, not seeking an immediate fee even when they min win the motion for med intent. The typical game here is the petitioner files a motion for med intent saying, I want this specific treatment. Maybe it's a right shoulder arthroscopic surgery. And the judge will say, okay, I'm ordering this surgery, maybe after a trial has commenced. The judge says, I'm going to order the surgery. It seems necessary. Uh, and you are now responsible to pay for it, insurance carrier or respondent. Petitioner's counsel then can take a fee. And we'll often say, well, judge, we know that surgery is going to cost in this jurisdiction $50,000. So why don't you give them a fee based on the value of the treatment that they've just obtained? Most times, petitioner's counsel will object to that and say, no, 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 judge. We have no idea how much maybe uh, follow-on treatment or um, sequential treatment this claimant's going to need. And for that reason, just write on their fee to abide, and we'll figure out my fee at the end of the case. You really want to challenge that 
because if the petitioner has won something specific, specific enough to be reduced to a form of order, then they really should have a specific fee entered at that time. And again, petitions counsel are always going to fight that because later on, when the case reaches final resolution, they're going to argue that any treatment that they received after the entry of that order, not just the treatment that's on or described in that specific judicial order, should be the basis of them obtaining an even larger fee. Now, one of the ways we challenge unnecessary treatment is by using expert witnesses. Now, when I'm hiring an expert, I want to make sure that I get a great report and that it's very useful in court. And I'm just noting now, uh, we just got our first question in, so thank you for asking that question and keep those questions coming. We get in IME when we're directed by the court, when there's an issue of maximum medical improvement or med intent, uh, when the claimant wants to bring in a new body part, or when there's an issue for things such as causal relationship or permanent disability. Now, we're, I know some of the frustration out there, which is like, Greg, I, I, hire, I get these IMEs scheduled, but the petitioner doesn't show. Well, the good news is under Section 19, if the issue is causal relationship, need for treatment, or temporary disability, well, you can suspend benefits until they attend that next IME. Uh, you can also um, charge back the cost of any missed IME directly to the petitioner, and we do that regularly here. In general, though, what I see is the judges generally give the petitioner a second bite at the apple. So when an IME is missed, we advise our adversary, hey, you're going to be responsible for paying that missed appointment fee, and here's the new date, and if he misses it again or she misses it again, we are then going to suspend all benefits. When I get an IME, um, a medical examiner, I want to just um, focus everyone who's listening on the fact that these are not truly independent or impartial evaluators. These are medical experts that I am picking because I already know who they are and how they're going to testify. So I'm looking for someone with great qualifications, who's going to do a good, competent exam, who's going to do some basic distraction testing like Waddell testing, do some basic credibility testing who's going to give me a clear report with a clear testimony, and then if I have to put them on the stand, that I know is going to hold up during testimony and holds up on cross. The way we get an excellent report is by sending a very comprehensive and excellent cover letter to the medical expert. We will also help them craft the questionnaire that they present to the petitioner. We will provide them with specific non-medical documents that we think are necessary, for example, maybe a surveillance video. Um, maybe non-medical documents like the person's job history or job description. There are absolutely no limitations on preparing your expert to testify in New Jersey. Certain cases, I'm going to be very specific about what I send to my evaluator. So in a cardio, or cardiac or cerebrovascular case, um, I'm going to advise the examiner about the legal standard. In a cardiac or cerebrovascular case, um, think about something like a, uh, a cardiac ischemic event or a heart attack or a stroke. The legal standard is that the petitioner must show that their work activity, which led to the cardio or cerebrovascular event, um, was much in excess of the regular stress and strain of daily living. And so I'm going to want to show, uh, A, what the person does in their personal life. I'm going to want to show them what the job description was for that day. I'm going to want to let the evaluator know like, the things like the weather. Like, was it really hot that day? Could that have led to their condition? And then we're going to want to go through a step-by-step -step history of the onset of those symptoms. So many uh, cardio or cerebrovascular events begin days earlier before the collapse or the 
um, visible signs of those events. And there's ways that we can pinpoint when the event actually occurred. In psychiatric cases, the legal standard in New York, in New Jersey is uh, based on the Goyden case, which says that the uh, petitioner has to show something extraordinary in the workplace, something peculiar that led to their um, psychiatric condition. So we're going to look at things like what are the interrogatory answers that we receive from the petitioner? What were the lay accounts, their own accounts of the alleged stressors that they were exposed to? What were the specific work uh, conditions? And what were their pre-existing conditions? All right, we're going to look at all of those things to establish or challenge uh, a psychiatric case. This is especially important in one class of cases, which is reopener cases. I'm going to want to provide my evaluator with the standard for a reopener case, which is that the petitioner must show that their condition has been materially worsened since the entry of their prior award. I'm going to want to provide my evaluator with copies of the interrogatory answers that I've obtained from petitioner. And of course, the transcript of the prior approval hearing where the petitioner described all of their conditions and concerns. I'm going to provide prior medical records and essentially this medical experts report is going to be a request for a comparative analysis. So I'm going to want to make sure that my evaluator has everything necessary to provide a really comprehensive report. All right. That's a little bit about medical treatment and how to stay in control of it. Remember, your goal in New Jersey is to absolutely stay in control of medical care. Uh, most of what I think the risk professional should be doing is scheduling and pushing to keep medical treatment on track. And this is where we're going to get the biggest impact, the biggest bang for your buck, the biggest ability to control and direct the outcome of a case is by controlling and directing that medical. All right, let's jump over to um, your questions. Let's see what kind of questions I have. I know I saw some pop up earlier. Okay, great. Miriam asked Greg the question. Hi, Greg. Does part of medical control include the plan for a carrier hiring a physician advisor to have treating authorized provider deceased medications deemed medically unnecessary, for example, to save costs, therefore results in the provider current treatment plans, palliative care being discharged or closed? Thank you. All right, so I'm going to parse that out because it seems like there's a, lot, a couple things in there. So the first thing is, can a carrier have a physician advisor? Absolutely, yes. You can be doing uh, peer review of what's going on on the treatment side by anyone you choose. It doesn't have to be someone on your staff, but if you have someone on your staff, that's great. You can absolutely utilize them. Now, can they um, help the risk professional control and direct the course of care? Absolutely. Can they communicate directly with the treating provider? Absolutely, right? This is a, a jurisdiction where if you are bringing in extra or additional medical expertise, whether that's your carrier advisor or not, it doesn't matter. Um, you can absolutely bring them in and deploy them to help um, control or, or and you said to save costs here, Greg. Um, you can absolutely do all of those things. Now, if that results in the provider's current treatment plan and care and or palliative care being discharged or closed, is that possible? And the answer is absolutely yes, right? So we use peer review in this jurisdiction all the time. Sometimes we'll provide those peer review reports to the treater and saying, hey, do you just do you agree with this or disagree with this? Sometimes it'll just be a call, a phone call between the peer reviewer and the um, treating physician to make sure everybody's on the same page. But yeah, you can do all of those things. We can guide you through that. And that's really straightforward. There is no concept in this jurisdiction, Miriam, and I'm familiar with you, and I, I think that you're primarily dealing with New York cases, like undue influence. You are allowed to um, directly communicate, to schedule things, to follow up on, to ask for medical notes, 
from those medical providers or clinicians that you're hiring to take care of your patients. So that, that's all under your control. All right. Um, Ryan asked a question. Hey, Greg, when they are asking for a second opinion, typically if they want surgery or for further treatment, and our doctor doesn't feel anything further is needed, how do we shut this down? Typically, we see them get their own opinion. That, of course, says they need the treatment or they file a motion for med intent. Do we have to provide a second opinion? Ryan, the answer is no. In fact, I am strongly against second opinions in this jurisdiction. You have no statutory or legal obligation to go out and get second opinions. If they don't like what the treating physician says, particularly in regards to discharge and also in regards to bringing in new body parts, this is typically where I see it. It's either the physician's like, okay, you've reached MMI, you might have some permanent residual disability, but this is as far as it goes, or they're trying to bring in the new body part and the physician's like, no, that's not part of this case. Sorry, I'm not treating that. That's when they'll typically say, oh, I need a second opinion. I just want to go back. My position is generally we should be disputing and not allowing that. That is generally not positive for us. I do not like offering second opinions. They do not help us, particularly where it's just, I don't like what the doctor said. I want a new doctor. Again, you have no obligation to do it. Can they file a motion for men in temp? Sure. But those motions are going to be generally defective. And they're going to be defective because they're typically supported by a physician who's not going to be the treater. In other words, they'll go out to Saul Myers or one of their medical experts that they use all the time to say, oh, this person does need this care. And I'm like, well, that's cute. I'm glad you found a physician to say they need this care that they want, right? Maybe they watched TV and they saw some commercial for some weird medication. Now they want to be put on it. And you found somebody who says they, they'll put them on it. But that physician is not going to actually do that surgery or take over their care. You just hired a medical expert. So that, to me, doesn't count, really. That's not... Uh, that, to me, is not a strong enough basis for one of these motions. So I would be challenging that and pushing back against that. Um, so the answer to you, Ryan, is no, we don't have to provide a second opinion. Okay, Ryan asks the second question. Greg, when they file a reopener, should we send them back to the authorized treating doctor that last saw them, or do you go right to a perm about? Okay, stop the presses. First, never just send them right back. That's a terrible idea. You're, you're going to have the petitioner's counsel call you up all the time and go, hey, they just want to go back to the treating doctor just once. Can you let them go? Don't do it. No. First of all, until you do a full investigation, longitudinally, what's happened since the entry of that last award? Did they have any new subsequent accidents? Do we have an ISO? Do we have a claims index bureau report? Have we looked through the docket? So we made sure there isn't something new. Second, why? what's, what's drawing them to go back to the doctor or to seek this reopener? The answer is probably money. It's not treatment. Most cases, like 99%, there has been no interim medical care. So these are clearly just being driven by money, money grabs. Let's get that second section 20, um, or get that first section 20, excuse me. And so my advice is absolutely not, and, and do not send them right back to the treating physician. That's almost always a mistake. The second thing I'm going to tell you is the second question you ask, which is, okay, do you send them to the treating physician or do you send them to an IME? I don't send them to an IME immediately. I want to do that investigation. I want to serve them with interrogatories. I want to make sure there's been no interim care. I want to run an ISO. I want to look through the medical canvassing. I want to make sure there's nothing new in here. What has changed, right? So I don't just also jump into the IME. I really want to look into that case. So that um, advice is, you know, really how you're going to put together the best defense you can possibly have to that reopener. All right, let me see if there's any other questions in here. These are great questions. Thank you, Miriam, and thank you, Ryan, for your two questions. Okay, I don't see any others. Well, if you're thinking about your question and you haven't had a chance to answer it yet or ask it yet, please go ahead and do it. I will respond to you over email. Our next course next month is going to be on lost time benefits and return to work issues. Please join us for that. In the meantime, everybody, 
Have a great rest of your week. See you soon. Bye.